ask you to bless this time as we look at your word. We thank you for your care and love. We ask you for your guidance as we look at this scripture and see how it applies to us. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Jeremiah 21. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah from the Lord when King Zedekiah sent unto him Peshah, the son of Melchiah, and Zephaniah, the son of Messiah, the priest, saying, Inquire, I pray you, of the Lord for us, for Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, makes war against us. If so be that the Lord will deal with us according to all his wondrous works, that he may go up from us. I'm going to stop there. Because this, is, this is the request. I mean, this is, they, they've been told that God is going to curse them and, and take them into captivity and all of this. And Zedekiah, the last king of Judah, when he has Nebuchadnezzar outside of the city besieging it, decides that he's going to beseech God. And I just think this is so funny, but you know, this is very interesting that people who don't believe in God or don't want to obey God or follow God, when times get hard, want to ask for prayer and want God's deliverance. And this is, this is Zedekiah. He hasn't been obeying God. The previous chapter, we had uh, Jeremiah speaking, and Peshaw smacks him in the, you know, strikes him in the face and throws him into, into prison because he's speaking things that he doesn't want to hear. And now he's one of the ones going out to say, hey, the king wants you to ask God for help. And it's kind of interesting what he says here because he says, inquire, I pray, of the Lord for us. For Nebuchadnezzar is out of Babylon is making war against us. So he's making his argument. You know, Nebuchadnezzar is out there. He's besieging the city. There's, they really believe that they're going to survive because this Jerusalem had never been taken other than when David took it to be the city, be his capital city. But all the time for the three, four hundred years that these kings have been ruling, Jerusalem had never been conquered. And the people started believing that it was impregnable. Nobody can ever take Jerusalem. We, we've got a city that nobody can ever take. And yet, they're so worried, they send, to, they send to Jeremiah, the prophet of God, and say, inquire of us, so that God, you know, if so, then maybe God will deal with us according to his wondrous works, and he may go up from us. And what are they saying? Maybe God will do the things he's done in the past. <laughs> All right. Uh, we're not following him. We don't care about him. We're worshiping every other God. But maybe because we, this is his city and we have his temple, maybe he will do the things that he has done in the past. What are the things he's done in the past? Well, he destroyed his, uh, Egypt with the ten plagues. He destroyed uh, Jericho with the, when they walked around the city. And all the different things. We could go down through all the stories that you know, happened. Uh, Hezekiah going out to battle and God destroying the enemy with the singers leading the way. And so he's going, well, maybe God will do something great. And the problem is, in every time God did something great, there was a revival and a move toward God before God did something great. God didn't just come in and say, well, I'm going to come in and do mighty things for you just because I feel, feel like doing mighty things for you. There was always some kind of revival. Hezekiah brought a revival. Josiah brought a revival. David had a revival. They were following God when God did mighty things. And here's Zedekiah saying, okay, we're worshiping idols. There's idols and, and altars on every street corner, but we're going we're gonna to ask God for help because we're his people. We're the Jews. We're his people. We're in his city. There's a temple over there that belongs to God, so we're going to ask God to do something great. And you know, again, it just amazes me how many people that don't follow God, don't believe in God, but when there's a trouble or trial or a hardship in their life, the first thing they'll do is find you and go, will you pray for me? And sometimes I really want to ask, you know, well, why should I pray for you? You, don't, you know, uh, you're not following God anyway. Why should he reach out and touch you? Now, I usually will pray for them anyway. But Jeremiah is going to be a little more bold because he's going to actually say what God says on this. And, you know, just I find it very, the audacity of people when they need help, they'll, they'll turn to God. But don't want to follow him when, when, when everything's okay. 
And so this is where we're at with Zedekiah uh, coming into him. And verse 3, Then said Jeremiah unto them, Thus shall you say unto Zedekiah, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, Behold, I will turn back the weapons of war that are in your hands, wherewith you fight against the king of Babylon and, and against the Chaldeans, which besiege you without the walls, and I will assemble them in the midst of the city. And I myself will fight against you and with an outstretched hand and with a strong arm, even in anger and in fury and in great wrath, I will smite the inhabitants of this city, both men and beast, and they shall die of a great pestilence. And afterwards, says, say, saith the Lord, I will deliver Zedekiah, king of Judah, and his servants and the people and such as that are left in the city from the pestilence and the sword and from the famine into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and into the hand of, the en of their enemies and into the hand of those that seek their life. And, I shall, and he shall smite them with the edge of the sword and he shall not spare them, neither have pity nor mercy. So this is the answer that Jeremiah gives. Uh, basically, he's saying, go jump in the lake, <laughs> but not quite that bluntly. <laughs> Uh, he says, God will turn back or, or reverse the weapons of war that are in your hands. So in other words, he's saying, you're using weapons to defend yourself. They're going to be used against you. Pretty sad statement, and yet we've seen this happen many times in battles. If you study history, where people get totally routed, their weapons get started to be used against them. And he says, God is going to turn your weapons against you. You think you're strong. You think this city is going to be able to prevail. God will turn the weapons against you. And one of the things I want to note in here is that where God keeps saying, I will. Over and over in this section, it says, I will do these things. He says, not saying Nebuchadnezzar is going to do it. He's not saying, God says, I am actively going to be against you because you have been against me for too long. And this has been going on for a long time. Uh, Jehoiakim, Jehoiachin, and now Zedekiah had all had these curses pronounced against them. Uh, the king before them was said, okay, you have gotten a revival, so the judgment will not happen in your time that your father deserved, uh, left you to deserve. But because you had a revival, it'll happen in the next in, in the future. So God has been telling them over and over again, because of your disobedience, judgment is coming. And the problem that people have when God says judgment is coming is that God sees time differently than we do, and we wait 30, 40, 50, 60, 100 years for judgment, and people go, ah, well, God didn't mean it when he said the judgment was going to come. Uh, but God says, my time is not your time. I see things totally different than you. A hundred years, a thousand years to God is nothing. And when he says judgment's going to fall, it is going to fall. And that's where we are in our world today. People are looking at this world and Christians for 2,000 years saying Jesus is coming back soon and the world is going to fall apart. Everybody's going, yeah, right, you guys have been saying that for so long. Who believes it? And we'll, you'll hear it even today. If you start sharing that Jesus is coming back, the world's coming to an end, they're going, yeah, you guys have been saying that forever. Yeah, it's not happening. That's what Zedekiah and they were, were saying. Yeah, you guys, you, you prophets have been telling us that we're going to go into captivity for a long time, and it hasn't happened for all these decades, all these centuries. You know, why don't you guys just go into your, into your closets and keep quiet for a while because you keep telling us these bad things are going to happen, and they don't happen. And Zedekiah is being told, you know, now is the time. We are at that point, and it's going to be here. He says, your weapons are going to be turned against you, the ones that you're using against the Babylonians and the Chaldeans. And he goes, which lay siege. And then he says, and I will assemble them in the midst of the city. So God is saying, I will actually bring them from outside the walls, inside the walls. And notice God saying, I will do this. And this battle was the time that Jerusalem was finally defeated outside of when David took it from the, when it was called Jeru. Uh, and
took it from, from them and he made it his capital city. It had never been even close to being conquered. It had been laid siege to a couple of times and God delivered them. And remember the Assyrians besieged it and God killed 185,000 Assyrians in one night. And so this is what Zedekiah is saying, you know, God, maybe God will deliver us. Well, he wasn't Zedekiah, Zedekiah was, not, was not Hezekiah who prayed. Uh, he was being Zedekiah saying, well, I'm king, I deserve, you know, I, and these are God's people, God sh must deliver us. And we need to be very careful, even as Christians sometimes, we get into this habit of saying, well, because we're his, he's going to make our life nice and easy. Now, I don't find any verse in the Bible that God promises to make our life easy. He promises to bless, he promises to give us our, our needs, but nowhere does he say that life will be easy. And if you read any character in the Bible, their life was not easy. They had all kinds of trials and tribulations and hardships where they had to depend on God for those blessings. Zedekiah wanted the blessings without the following, without the trials, without the, the hardships. And he's going, God, I just want the blessing. And I feel sorry when I see people going, God, I just want the blessings. And that's part of what we have so many churches now preaching, you know, that God is good and that means he wants you to be healthy, wealthy, wise and no trials, no tribulations, no hard times. But nowhere in the scriptures do we see that on the, on the people that he brings up. And I think we need to prepare ourselves because if we are truly at the end times, and I believe we are, things will get hard for the church again, as it has been many, many times over the millennia that we've been following him. And that we're going to start seeing persecution even in America. Uh, there's persecution in Africa, Asia, Middle East, uh, Indonesia, everywhere. Europe is starting to get persecution for Christians, and America is starting to get see persecution for Christians. Very light so far, but we're going to see persecution, I think, before the rapture. And because I think the rapture is very close, that means we're going to see persecution pretty soon. And we're starting to see all of this happen. Zedekiah didn't want to go through all the trials of that. He just said, God bless us, even though we're not following you. And God says, no, I'm not going to do that. And he says, and... Uh, Verse 5 says, And I myself will fight against you with an outstretched hand and with a strong arm. Now, if God is against you, you're in trouble. You know, the flip side is that if God is for you, nothing can go wrong. You know, nothing ultimately can go wrong. You know, we may feel battered and beat up, but God's still for us. There's, there's nothing that can happen to it. But when God is against you, you're in trouble. Uh, one, one time my oldest son was misbehaving and he was not listening and I told him, okay, I'm putting you in God's hands. And in recent years, he's told me that, that he remembered that to, to his later years and he goes, that terrified him. That it was no longer dad that was going to be <laughs> taking and, and enforcing things. It was going to be God. And if God is against you, you are, <laughs> you are out of luck. <laughs> You know, he knows everything you're going to do to try to get away with things. He knows everything about you. He knows exactly how to make the, make the pain, you know, work. And Zedekiah has God against him. And he says, with a strong arm, he's going to come against him. And then I find this very interesting because I actually looked this up and it says, even in anger and in fury and in great wrath. Now, this is kind of interesting that God uses three different statements of how he's going to come against him and the word for in Hebrew for anger is anger seen in the face that you know if you've ever seen somebody you just look at them and you know that they are angry that's this word that they could see the anger if they could see his face but they could that's this type of word it's anger that you are very clear to see fury that is a hot burning ra rage and God says, I am so angry with you, you can see it in my actions, and you're going to see it because it is hot. And the last one is wrath, which is indignation or to break or snap. And I think this is kind of an interesting word, to break or snap, because people will say they finally snapped. <laughs> and what does that mean? Basically, they went crazy. <laughs> so this great wrath is that, that same type of word, that God is, God's patience had finally broken. He had snapped and all of his anger was going to be poured out on them.
Now, this is something when he says three times, I'm going to go, go after you. What's fury? Fury is a, is a, a burning, bur, burning rage okay. or hot displeasure. <laughs> so they're all the same thing, basically. God is very, very angry with them and not, gonna, not holding himself back anymore, especially that last one. He's finally snapped. I'm not, I'm not holding back anymore. Now, obviously, he held back because they didn't totally disappear from the face of the world, because that would have been a total snap. But, it, but he, he finally said, my patience is at an end. You're going into captivity. And I am going to fight against you in the process of this captivity. And this is very harsh. And he says, I will smite the inhabitants of this city, both men and beast, and they shall die of a great pestilence. Now, this word pestilence literally means plague and diseases. So they're being attacked by, by Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar, but it appears that God also brought some kind of deadly disease upon them as well, because that's what he said. Now, I don't remember reading anything about a plague during this period of time, but he did something that caused them, might have just made them weak, maybe, maybe it was a flu epidemic or, a, you know, pneumonia or something that made them weak so that they couldn't even defend themselves. I don't know. But he says, I'm sending a pestilence as well. And they remember, they've also been besieged. And when you were besieged, these big cities with the big walls, usually you gave up after a while because they would surround you for two, three, four years and starve you to death. You know, and make you so starved that even if you did try to fight, you had no strength to fight. And eventually, most of those cities would surrender because they could not defend themselves or they would finally build up ladders and go over the walls because the, because the people were so weak they couldn't, couldn't fight anymore. But God says there's going to be a pestilence as well. And he says, And afterwards, says the Lord, I will deliver Zedekiah, king of Judah, and his servants and, his, and the people, and such that are left in the city from the pestilence, from the sword, from the famine, into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. God says, I'm going to take you out of your city and you're going to be made prisoners of this, new, of this king and into the hand of their enemies and into the hand of those that seek their lives and he shall smite them with the edge of the sword and he shall not spare them, neither have pity nor have compassion. So again, we have a threefold definition here and this one's even harder because each one of those Hebrew words means to have compassion. They're all different words, but they all basically come down to have compassion. So three times he says, he will not have compassion, he will not have compassion, he will not have compassion on you. Now, one of the things that you want to, we've said before, if, when God says something in a threefold way, we want to pay attention to it. All right? In Isaiah, he says, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, trying to emphasize the holiness of God. And here he's saying, God is angry, angry, angry. <laughs> and Nebuchadnezzar will not have compassion, will not have compassion, will not have compassion. He's really emphasizing God's anger and the lack of compassion that Nebuchadnezzar had. And if you've studied history, Nebuchadnezzar was famous for being brutal to those he conquered. He didn't leave a lot of people alive from the cities he conquered and all of their area around them. He shipped all their people out of the country. And that was what he did. That was how he took care of an, an area. He would ship, he would conquer an area and he would take all the inhabitants of that area, ship them all around the, his empire, 120 different counties, and then he'd ship people from those counties into the area that he conquered. And that would keep them from wanting to fight and defend their, defend their homeland because it wasn't their homeland. And they really wouldn't care. And because they all spoke different languages and everything, that he didn't have to worry about them getting together and trying to rebel against him either. That was his way of solving his conquering problem. And uh, so he did all of this, and he, God is saying he would not spare. Many of them were going to die by the sword. Zedekiah is carried into Babylon with his princes and his royal house. They were carried into Babylon. And most of the, most of the people in Jerusalem were put to death. And so this is, this is the 
story of Jeremiah says, you know, you, the king's asking for a miracle, here's his miracle. He's going to be, God is turning his hand against him. Now, I'm not sure, you've got to put yourself in the place of the king. The king is asking for a miracle of God from the man of God, and he basically gets this thing that he's going to look at as being a treacherous statement. Now, you're supposed to be on our side, and you're giving us nothing but bad words from God. You know, are you a Jew or are you not a Jew <laughs> type deal? And we think, uh, when I was reading this, I was thinking of, of Balaam when he was hired to curse Israel. And all he could do is say, I've got to say what God says, and God bless, and blesses the people. And the king got madder at him after each, each uh, time that he would bless Israel says, I was going to make you rich. I was going to make you a, a man, of, you know, a great man. And all you're doing is blessing my enemy. Now, here is working the other way around. I wanted a blessing, and all you're doing is declaring a curse. Yeah. For all practical purposes. You know, for all practical purposes, when we're disobeying God, it, we will speak like Satan. I'm not going to say Satan speaks through us. But we will sound very much like Satan with our opposition to God because that's where we're at. We're in opposition to God. And so here, here's what's going on. And Jeremiah is speaking these things that the king is going to say, you are a traitor. You know, you're a traitor. You're, you're destroying the morale of the people with these words because some of them actually believe that you're a man of God and you're speaking words that are going to destroy the morale of our city. And now it's going to go get worse. He's, he, this, is what his, this is his words to Zedekiah. Zedekiah, God's going to destroy us. Now his words of treachery get to be even more, at least in Zedekiah's uh, opinion. Verse 8. And unto the people you shall say, Thus saith the Lord, Behold, I set before you a way of life and a way of death. He that abideth in this city shall die by the sword and by the famine and by pestilence. But he that goes out and fallest to the Chaldeans that besiege you, he shall live, and his life shall be unto him for a prey. For I have set my face against this city for evil and not for good, saith the Lord. It shall be given into the hand of the king of Babylon, and he shall burn it with fire. So the message to the people is just as treacherous as far as Zedekiah is, or even worse. It was one thing to tell the king that God's, God's against you. But what's he telling the people? The first thing he says, uh, God has set a path before you. A way of life and a way of death. He's basically saying, today, choose who you're going to follow. The same thing Joshua told the people, choose you this day whom you will follow, the gods of the, on the other side of the river or the God. And Jeremiah is doing the same thing. Who are you going to follow? Are you going to listen to God and be obedient to God? Or are you going to go the way of death and listen to the king? Which are you going to do? Now, the easy way is to listen to the king because he's got the gates shut. <laughs> You've got to figure, to get out of the city, the, Jeremiah is telling them to get out of the city. The gates are shut and, and barred. They're going to have to climb over the walls. They're going to have to... You know, somehow convince a guard, you know, the, the, the gate guards to open up the gates or, or the porticuses or whatever they need to get out. So it is not an easy thing for them to obey God's word. And the one thing about it is it never seems easy to obey God's word. Because it always seems like it's going to be the hard thing to do because it is against the way of the world. When God says, do this, and we're going, well, God, that doesn't make any sense. Just simple things like love your, love your enemies. You know, real simple thing. And we're going, God can't do that. It goes against everything. And God says, but I didn't give you a choice. I commanded it. And it goes, and by the way, love each other. That's the easy one. You should be able to love each other because you're supposed to love each other. And you're supposed to have love for one another. But to love your enemy? You know, and we look and say the things that God tells us to do sometimes seem so strange and so hard. And it's, we look at it from the flesh's point of view and say, God, I just can't understand how I can do this. And he's telling the people, here's your path. He goes, he that abides in this city shall die by the sword, by the famine, and by the pestilence. Because if you stay in the city, you're going to die. 
Now remember, their attitude is God's temple's here. God would never let this, this city fall. This city has not fallen since David conquered it, and it's been strengthened every, every, with every king making it stronger and stronger, so there is no way we're going to fall. So they're going to be looking at him and saying, Jeremiah, what is wrong with you? Don't you know these things? Don't you know God's temple's up there, and we're not, you know, and we know we don't worship up there, but his temple's right here in the city. This is, he lives up there on the hill. He's not going to let this city fall. This city hasn't fallen for several hundred years. And they're looking at him going, and you're telling us that if we stay in this city, the, the protection of it, we're going to die. And then he goes even further. He goes, uh, he that goes out and falls before the Chaldeans, which literally means prostates themselves before the Chaldeans, he shall live. Now, again, there's that mean king out there who's trying to conquer your city. And Jeremiah saying, go out there, bow down before him, and he'll let you live. And they're thinking, yeah, as soon as we go out that door, we're going to, get, we're going to become a pincushion with the arrows and the spears and, and, and be, be rocked, rocked to death with the slings and run, swords run through us. Do you understand how this seems so contrary to what the human nature would have said? Stay in the city, be safe. Go out of the city and, and die because the enemy's out there. And he's saying, God is saying, if you stay in the city, you're going to die. If you go out of the city, you're going to be safe. Not an easy thing to do. Not very easy to do at all because it goes against everything that their, their flesh is telling them. I don't want to go out there. They're, the enemy's out there. Yeah, he, he'll kill us as soon as we step out the door. He'll kill us as soon as we go over the wall, however you want to look at it. And he's going to kill us. And you're telling us that we're here in the safety of this city and we're going to die. How many times does God speak to us and it's exactly that kind of situation in our, in our mind? God, you really don't understand. If I speak these things, then the world is going to go after me. If I speak truth, if I tell people the truth, I may lose my job. If I speak the truth, they're going to not like me. And that's really true. They don't like us when we speak the truth. And we might get fired if we speak the truth in today's world. But... God says, I will, if you follow me, there will be blessing. If you want to hide your light, then you're going to suffer the consequences. And so all of this is going on in their minds as they're going through. And then it goes on, for, for I, God, have set my face against this city for evil and not for good. You think I'm going to spare this city because my temple's in it? You've got, you think I'm going to spare this city because my people dwell in this city? He goes, I have decided evil against this city. That's God speaking. God speaking, yeah. Speaking through him, or is he actually... God speaking through him, yeah. Right. Jeremiah's the prophet. God told him what to say, so this is why he's using what God said. He says, thus saith the Lord. You know, thus saith the Lord. So he's quoting God to them. And uh, when God speaks, you want to listen. But, of course, the problem is it's not God in a thundering voice from heaven saying these words. This is Jeremiah speaking God's words. So they're going, well, who are you to think that you can tell us these hard, hard words? And that's the problem with all with When the prophets spoke, the people recognized them as prophets. They knew that they spoke for God, but when they didn't want to hear what they were hearing, it's like, okay, this person's not speaking for God, with God. They're, they're making things up now. And that's where they're at right now, kind of. You know, well, some of them are going to believe and try to get out of the city, probably, and others are going to say, well, I don't know what this fool is talking about. We're safe in here. And what do you mean God has determined evil? This is God's city. This is his temple here. We're his people. We're Abraham's seed. Nothing can happen to us. And they can go right down the list of all the reasons why they were safe in Jerusalem and didn't want to surrender. And Zedekiah is really going to build that up as well because he is in rebellion against God and Nebuchadnezzar who put him into power. And he says, I will give into the hand of the king of Babylon and he shall burn it with fire. And history tells us that's exactly what happened to Jerusalem when Zedekiah was, was uh, captured and the city was taken. They tore down the entire wall of Jerusalem and they burned the city to the ground. 
and destroyed the temple and burnt it to the ground. And you know, we don't know all of what it was built on. We know some of it was built out of, out of stone. But the city of Jerusalem at this period of time had a lot of cedars from Lebanon used in its construction. So there was a lot of wood all over the place. So this, this city was very pretty because of the cedar wood and decorated with cedar paneling and everything that was, could be there. But it was also set up to be a tinderbox when it was ignited. Uh, and I've been reading some historical documents, not just about Jerusalem and everything, but these ancient cities had the same construction problems we have today. The, the builders cut as many corners as they could and used bricks that weren't perfectly made. They, they would use the cheapest wood and not enough support. And then they would fall down because they weren't built right. They would, they would burn quickly in like tinder boxes. And Jerusalem probably was a, no less a problem <laughs> uh, because people have always been that way. How cheap can I make a building and then rent it out and, and you know, auction it off or whatever and let other people die because I cut corners and I made lots of money. And this city is going to be burnt to the ground. Because we always think, you know, we look at these cities and we think they were all made out of brick and, and stones and everything. And yes, lots of it was made out of stones. and The roofs were not, the interior walls were not, and the doors weren't. And even, even various parts of the walls were not made out of brick a lot of times. Which is why when you see the ancient pictures, there's only like half a building standing up because the front of it was brick and the rest of it was material that we don't know of in today's world. And so he says, it is going to be burnt with fire. And the people inside there are going like, number one, they can't get in, they can't get past our walls. Nobody's ever gotten past our walls. And then they're going, and you know, God is going to deliver us. And this is the dichotomy that's even today in the minds of the Jews. They will tell you that they do not believe in God, and then they will turn around and tell you that God gave them their land. Yeah, and it's in the same breath. Well, I, I don't believe in God, but God gave us this land because that is what they're told over and over again. And even though they don't necessarily believe in God, they believe that the land was given to them. And the land was promised to them by the God they don't believe in. This is where Zedekiah and his people are at. We really don't believe in that God, but that's his temple up there. He gave us this city. He gave us this land. There is no way he's going to take this land from us. And they trusted in that kind of a statement, even though they weren't obeying and following God. They were God's people. And he, he lives up there on that hill in that temple, which was sad to begin the beginning that they thought God lived in the temple because Solomon and David both said, no temple can contain God. And God even told them when, he was, when they were building it, there cannot be a building that will contain me, but I will put my presence on that building. So, but they had come to the place where God lives up there in that temple. Why? Because they had a bunch of other gods that all lived in temples. So they just thought, well, our God lives in a temple too. You know, even though we're not worshiping him, he lives up there in that temple and, and we know where he's at. And we remember the stories, but they never remembered the stories completely. Uh, and even in our day, we have having less and less biblical uh, literacy in our country. And the few things they do know about the Bible are totally taken out of context and twisted and not complete and, and all these things. And you're going, where in the world did you f believe that from? Well, it's in the Bible. I'm going, no, that's not in the Bible. Would you like the rest of the, the whole story? Uh, you know, just little things like the uh, money is the root of, of evil that people will tell you. No, the love of money is the root of evil. Or the famous one in America, cleanliness is next to godliness. Well, that's sorry, that's not in the Bible either. Or God helps them who help themselves. Well, you know, my Bible teaches me the exact Opposite. God helps those who realize that they can't help themselves. Yeah, it's a totally opposite. At least cleanliness is next to godliness is something that God talked about being clean and, and sanitary. So you can almost pick that one up. But God helps those who help themselves is so far off 
Because God says, no, I'm going to help those who cannot help themselves, that recognize that they are beyond help. And so we have all these things that go on that people try to believe in, about God and are so far off. You know, how many people, including Christians, believe that God is a big meanie up there in heaven looking for, looking for the opportunity to smash us? And I know so many people that believe that. You know, they're afraid to do anything because they're afraid that if they do something wrong, God is up there with a hammer or a spade or a belt or lightning bolts or whatever they, whatever they picture it as, waiting to crush them. Instead of loving them so much that he sent his son to die for them, knowing that they were guilty. And if we fully start to understand who God is, it changes the way we act in, toward him and the things that we're willing to do. When we fully believe that he loves us, it gives us a lot of freedom. When we fully believe that he shows us mercy and grace, it gives us freedom to step out and do things. And I've seen it even, even in, real, in, in real life and workplaces. You've got the boss who's always on you about everything you're doing and looking for anything that, he can, that you're doing wrong so they can jump all over you. Nobody does anything. They're afraid to do anything. And then they get in trouble for not doing anything. Now, but if you have a boss that's saying, hey, thank you for trying, let's try this next time, people are more likely to jump in and try. And that's our God. Our God is saying, well, it didn't go quite the way we needed it to go, but you tried. You stepped out. And that's very important on this. Verse 11. And touching the house of the king of Judah, say, Hear you the word of the Lord, O house of David. Thus saith the Lord, Execute judgment in the morning, and deliver him that is spoiled out of the hand of the oppressor, lest my fury go out like a fire and burn that none can quench it because of the evil of your doings. Behold, I am against you, O inhabitant of the valley and rock of the plain, saith the Lord, which says, Who shall come down against us and who shall enter into our habitation? But I will punish you according to the fruit of your doings, says the Lord, and I will kindle a fire in the forest thereof and it shall devour all things around about. So now God switches from, he started his direct speech to the king, then to the people, and now to the king's house. To the house of the king of Judah say, hear the word of the Lord. And again, this word for hear in the Hebrew is literally hear and obey. All right? It's not just let, the, let these words hit your eardrums. <laughs> he goes, hear with the heart of obedience. And this is the way we should come before God always to hear and obey. And it's hard sometimes when God tells us to do things that we don't want to do to do that obedience side. It's real easy to go, okay, God, I kind of like that one. I'm going to do this one. God, you want me to do what? Uh, and then our obedience side starts to dwindle a little bit. And we have a hard time sometimes being obedient to what we hear. And that's very important on this. He says, hear the word of the Lord, O house of David. Execute judgment in the morning. Give a righteous leading, a righteous judgment. Okay, what would be his righteous judgment? He's going to tell them in this. It's a little hidden in what, he, what he's telling them. He goes, deliver him that is spoiled or plunder out of the hand of the oppressor, lest my fury go out like a fire and burn, and none can quench it because of the evil of your doings. What is he saying? Go out tomorrow morning like I have told you to do. Go out that gate and surrender. Deliver those who are going to be the spoil, which is everybody in the city. So he's telling the king and his, and his family, go do what you have been told. Go outside the gate, bow yourself before Nebuchadnezzar and surrender Otherwise, they're going to be plunder, plunder and killed. Now, the people themselves couldn't really go out that gate, even though they were told you need to go out that gate. That gate was guarded by the king's army and the king's soldiers. It would be very difficult for them to obey Jeremiah's word and God's word and go out. Now, that doesn't free them from being obedient. It just makes it very difficult. How often is it difficult to obey God? Now, and this is something that we need to really fully understand we even think about the Ten Commandments. How 
hard or how easy is it to obey the Ten Commandments? Almost everybody violates every, every one of the Ten Commandments frequently, if not every day. They also have no other God before me, God says. And yet, how many times do we put things before God and say, we're going to do it our way? Now, many, you know, most of us in America don't bow down to graven images. Uh, so that one's not too hard in America, except for our televisions, and our cars, and our possessions, and, and, all the, and the families, and all the other stuff that, that we bow down to. Uh, you know, how many people tell lies? Just simple lies. You know, the quote-unquote white lie, innocent lies. You know, they're still lies. They're not the truth. How many of us lust after things? You know, covet, want things that don't belong to us. You know, don't honor our parents. All kinds of things that we, we violate all the time. And we have a hard time being obedient to God. And Jeremiah's telling them, said, do correct judgment in the morning. Open those gates, surrender. Now, I'm pretty sure he's absolutely sure that they're not going to open up those gates and surrender. But he's now speaking to the ones who can actually open the gates. The king's house, the princes. They could, they could open those gates and get out. He goes, and deliver them from him that is spoiled out of the hand of the oppressor because they're going to die. And that's what God says. If you're inside that city, when Nebuchadnezzar breaks in, you're going to die by the, by the sword, by pestilence. Death is coming unless you go out those gates. So he's reiterating the same message that he did to the people. Do, you know, do the right thing, O king and princes. You're going to lose this city. Surrender. Do the right thing. Now, the pride of the king is going to say, there is no way I'm surrendering. Now, we haven't really covered this, but Zedekiah was made to, to make an oath before Jehovah that he would be obedient and submitted to King Nebuchadnezzar because King Nebuchadnezzar put him in his place. And he broke his oath before God and King, King Nebuchadnezzar, which is why there's all this trouble going on in the first place. And so he is still not ready to listen. And he says, lest my fury go out like a fire and I burn that none can quench it because of the evil of your doing. And again, God is saying, I'm going to move. If you don't, if you don't do what I have told you to do, I'm going to bring great judgment. And here they're just days away from this judgment and they still will not submit to God and do what God says. God says, surrender to Nebuchadnezzar. And they refuse to do that. And this is hard because this is where nations get in trouble. When their leaders go the wrong direction, all the people of that nation suffer. We're seeing it in our country. They saw it in under, under Zedekiah. We've seen it in history over and over. When people turn against God and the leadership, the nation suffers. And this is where they're going. And Jeremiah is doing one last push with now the king's household. Listen to what God's saying. Surrender. Give up and just bow your neck to Nebuchadnezzar and everything will be okay. You'll live. You may not have a nation anymore, but you will at least keep your life. And so he's telling him this. And then verse 13, Behold, I am against you. So this is God again speaking. I am against you. Oh, people, you think that I'm going to spare you because this is the city that's never been taken? You think I'm going to spare you because you're Abraham's seed? You think I'm going to spare you because my temple's up there on that mountain? I am against you. And he could have also pointed out, remember the northern kingdom that went into captivity to Babylon because they thought that I was not going to do this. They, they have a his, history now that they could point back to that's just a hundred years before that they could say, Remember, you know, we, we had remembered the Alamo. Re, re, remember, remember Assyria. You know, they came in and conquered, to be, conquered because they rejected God completely. Don't be like that. Remember to follow God and honor him. And it says, I'm against you, O inhabitants of the valley, which would be that Megiddo Valley that, that, that spreads out from there. And the rock of the plain, which is Jerusalem, it's on the rock in the middle that comes up in the middle of it. 
And you'll note that whenever they talk about going to Jerusalem and Israel, they always say where well, you're going to go up to Jerusalem. Because no matter where you are in Israel, Jerusalem is up. It goes up a mountain. It's up a mountain. You cross a, cross a plain and you'll go up a mountain to get to Jerusalem. So this is the rock of the plain. And he says, says the Lord, to the people which say, who shall come against us? And who shall enter into our habitations? This is their attitude. Nobody's ever taken this city. Nobody can take this city. And this has happened over and over and over again in history where people think we have an impregnable palace. We have an uh, impregnable empire. Nobody can conquer us. Rome felt that way. Even though they didn't have one major city, they felt nobody can conquer us. And then they got so lazy and so inattuned and so much into their, their luxurious living that they were finally conquered by people that weren't even as strong as they were. And they were just totally devastated because of that. They basically fell from within because of their desire for luxury. And they got to a place where they didn't want to have kids because kids got in the way of their having fun. And before long, they didn't have enough people to guard their, guard their territory, and they were conquered. And this happens to every great nation. You can look in history. It happens to every great nation. They get, they get powerful, and then luxury starts taking over. And we're here in America at that point. Most Americans don't want to have any kids, period. Or if they do want it, they want one kid. Because kids get in the way of having fun. And that's historical for, for a nation at its end days. And then they get conquered from the inside by the aliens who come in and have kids that outnumber them and take over. And that happened in Rome. It happened in, in uh, Greece. It happened in France. It happens, it happens everywhere. And this is why we look at things and we go, we are in trouble. If we really understand history, this country is in trouble. Europe is falling flat on its face because of the same, same reasons. They, they were, got so luxurious in their living that they're being conquered by people who don't have their same mindset. And this is where they're at. You know, we, we've never been conquered. We cannot be conquered. You know, we can't be conquered. You know, God's on our side, even though he wasn't on their side. And they didn't care about God. But God is on our side. And this city has never been taken, and God has defended our city so many times, he'll, he'll continue to defend it. And we need to be very careful. When we're not on God's side, we cannot depend on him being on our side. And that's something that's very important. Without, And this is why I've said over and over again, without a national revival, which has to start in individual places, this country's in trouble. Because it cannot, God is not going to defend the country that is against him. And this is what's happening in Europe. It's what's happened in the Middle East. It's happening everywhere where people are rejecting God and God is stepping aside and saying, okay, fine, we'll let, I'm now against you. And this is what's happening here with Zedekiah. God says, I'm against you. I'm actively against you. And that's even scarier. Bad enough if he just pulls his hand of protection away. But now he's actively saying, I am going to actively destroy and the last verse goes, and I will punish you according to the fruit of your doing, says the Lord. I will kindle a fire in the forest thereof and will devour all things around about it. So God says, I will punish you according to what you are doing. You will reap what you sow. And this is always going to be true. People will reap what they sow. We will reap what we sow. Barring God's grace of saying, I'm going to step in and not allow what you deserve to happen. He doesn't do that very often in my, in my experience and in history. We reap what we sow, and we get what we deserve. Every once in a while, God will soften that blow because, because we repent. Every once in a while, he might even totally blunt it if we fully repent. But we're going to reap what we sow. There's so many times when we get the consequences for our action. We fall down flat on our face and we do something really, really stupid and then we suffer for it because God says you will reap what you sow. Now, he will still work it for good. He will still make something good come out of it. But there's so many things that happen to us because we deserve what we get. 
Israel is going to face that. They're going to get what they deserve. They've been worshiping idols. And remember earlier in the book, Jeremiah goes, you know, God doesn't want you praying to him anymore. He says, pray to your idols. He goes, God is not going to listen to you. You've been praying to these idols. You've been worshiping these idols. And he says, God says, go talk to them. And I think God says that a lot of times. You know, why will you come to me? Go talk to, you, go talk to your gods. You, you haven't been obeying me. Why should I step in and obey and, and help you? And he says, according to your fruit, and he says, I will kindle a fire in the forest thereof. Most of the people believe that this forest he's talking about is the cedar woods of, that, that everything is all over Jerusalem. Because there's not a lot of wood, and there's never been a lot of forest around Jerusalem. So he says, I'm going to burn up the, the city. And he says, I'm going to burn that fire, and nothing will be able to put it out. And that's exactly what happened to Jerusalem. It was, it was burnt to the ground and totally destroyed. And when Nebuchadnezzar left it behind, it said that not a stone was left upon a stone, not a stone in the temple was left, and that was because they burnt the temple and the gold melted down into the stones and they wanted every bit of the gold, so they tore it down. Same thing the Romans did in, in 70 AD. They, the gold melted into the rock, so they destroyed the, they destroyed the whole temple, getting every bit of gold that had melted into the cracks. And this has happened, and when it was being said, nobody really knew what was going to, that it was going to happen. They didn't really believe that it was going to happen. And then it did. And God delivered Jerusalem to Nebuchadnezzar and delivered Zedekiah and his family to, to, to Nebuchadnezzar and all the people that weren't killed went into captivity. And over and over again, he says, when you go into captivity, you're going to go and you are not going to come back, at least to the leaders. You're going to go into captivity and you're not coming back. And the very young got to come back 70 years later. They were only in captivity for 70 years. But it was long enough for the king and everybody else to totally die out. And only the youngest of the young came back. And it said in, in, in Ezra and Nehemiah that when they saw the new temple that was built to replace the old one, that the old ones wept because it was so inferior to Solomon's temple. It was so nothing compared to the original temple, and it, it made them sad. And they just remembered it in a, in a very briefest of activities. Because 70 years, you were going to be, you know, you had to be very, very young when you went into captivity to be able to remember the first temple. And it brought tears to their eyes when they saw the new one that was built to replace the original. And, you know, we need to be careful because when God rebuilds things, there's a two-way street, you know, when you've got to remember, when you think about the past, how many times does the past get romanticized? It was so good and everything was good back then and uh, we do it with the, you know, the 40s, 50s, 60s, you know, well, maybe not the 60s, but, <laughs> you know, back when we could leave our doors unlocked and, and everything was good and everybody liked each other. It wasn't a perfect time. If you go back to the newspapers of those days, it was just as, as much bad stuff going on. Yeah, it might have been a little safer because you could leave your doors open back then. But you know, there were still things going on and there was bad things happening. But we tend to romanticize the past. For, you know, put down the negative parts of it and raise up the, the positives. And the, the statement, comes, the proverb comes back, you can never go back home. Because home is never what you remember it being. It probably is still the same as it was, but it's not what you remember. And you try to go back home, and it's like, oh, this doesn't seem like the same place. And as fast as our world is growing, it won't be the same place. Those little small towns are no longer little small towns. You know, the, the place that used to be a stop sign is now a town. And you know, uh, it's so funny, last time I went back up through some of the small towns up the Sacramento Valley, that's all just one big city now. And it was like, okay, what happened to all these little towns? <laughs> and you can't go back. And God doesn't want us going back. He never wants us to go back. Churches, a lot of times, have the same problem. We remember when we had money in the bank or this activity going on or that activity going on and God was blessing. 
Okay, fine, that was in the past. Let's get into the presence and see where God's moving us now. And this is very important because it's so easy to think the, the good old days are gone. They're never coming back. Well, they're not coming back, but let's start new good old days and move forward in where we're at because the people are going to come back to Israel in 70 years from now and have to start all over again. But they still remember back at the good old days. And the days they're remembering weren't even good old days because that's when God brought judgment upon them. They weren't even trying to go back to David's reign or Hezekiah's reign or Josiah's reign. They were going back to Zedekiah's reign and saying that was the good old days. (laughs) And we need to be careful of what we're looking at when when we're comparing the past because God has never asked us to live in the past. He always wants us not even to live in the future. He wants us to live in this moment that we have any control over. Witness in this moment. Build his kingdom in this moment. Because I know and I have seen people who are always waiting for something in the future. Someday, when I get wealthy enough or I have enough time or the kids are grown up or whatever it might be, in the future, God, I can serve you. I can do this or we can do this. And we lose everything in between those days. And then we get to the future and realize that, yeah, we got all the time in the world. We might even have all the money, you know, some of the money in the world, but we don't have the energy. All right? And because we burned off all our energy doing whatever else, we cannot live in the past. We cannot live in the future. We must live in the moment that God has given us to live in. Because I've seen so many people waste their life in both directions. Living in the past. Well, it was so good back then, and so many bad things have happened to me, and you know, nothing's been good since, since this one event back in my life 50 years ago, 40 years ago, 30 years ago, and nothing good has ever happened to me since, or living for that future hope. You know, well, when I get, you know, and that never comes most of the time. And then we waste our time either living in the past or living in the future and not living in the moment that we, God has given us. And the Jewish people were on that. You know, Zedekiah is going, well, God, maybe God will do what he's done in the past. You know, God, was, God did these wonderful things. That's what, the, that's what the scriptures tell us. That's what the Levites tell us, that he, you know, deli- you know, that he killed 185,000 Assyrians. He did this. He did that. You know, maybe God will do that for us. Living in the past, but not really fully understanding that they got it because of their humility to God their desire to be obedient to God, and he's not wanting to be obedient. And so we need to be careful about how we look at God and start living in the present moment that we're in. Lord, we ask you to bless this evening. Lord, help us to always look to see what you're doing in our life and to follow you for all all that you have for us in the moment that we're dealing with it. Help us to, to keep seeking you and to follow you in all things. In Jesus' name, amen. Listening friend, do you know where you'll go after you die? Without the gift of Jesus, it will be an eternity in hell without God. Good works will not get you there. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. To spend eternity with God, we must recognize that we are sinners in need of Christ. For all of sin and come short of the glory of God. And the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. To be assured eternal life, we simply talk to God, admit you are a sinner, and ask him for his free gift. You must mean the words to get the to be answered. Jesus is waiting to hear your request. If you have asked him for eternal life, he has come into you and he will change you. Start reading the book of Ephesians and see what God says about your new life. After you understand the book of Ephesians, you can start reading the Gospel of John. Next, find a good Bible teaching church. Tell the pastor about your decision for God and be taught. If you contact us, we will send you a new believer booklet free of charge. Congratulations and grow in Christ. You can contact us by email at office at chloridebaptistchurch.com or by snail mail at P.O. Box 65, Chloride, Arizona 86431. We are happy to help with your new life in Christ or even answering Bible questions. Again, congratulations on your decision for Christ.